house. No, the right no, house. I didn't get We want to talk to Marilyn Hack. I'm from Canada Water. Sorry, we're all out. Singing lessons. <laughs> Welcome to Fairyland. You're probably you're in a Sinatra. Well, I don't do Sinatra, although I'm sure I'm the only girl who hasn't. You better watch out for Rusty, honey. She likes you straight guys. I never yeah. thought I'd see Walt the Coons hanging out with drag queens. <laughs> <laughs> Face the music. Or should I just get Dr. Kevorkian's phone number for you? You want truth? You're never gonna be a woman. I'm more man than you will ever be, and more woman than you will ever get. Hello and welcome to the This Had Oscar Buzz podcast, the only podcast trashing your house in the name of Javier Bardem's poetry. Every week on This Had Oscar Buzz, we'll be talking about a different movie that once upon a time had lofty Academy Award aspirations, but for some reason or another, it all went wrong. The Oscar hopes died, and we are here to perform the autopsy. I am your host, Chris File, and I'm here as always with my vocal coach and co-host, Joe Reed. Chris, Chris, Bobis, Banana, <laughs> Fana, Fofis. We didn't How are talk you? about Philip Seymour Hoffman's uh, singing voice, but he had a nice little round baritone. He uh, certainly is full. able to sound out those vowels. That's such a big part of his mm-hmm. singing lessons in this in this film. It's like an hour of scales. They just learn scales yes, for a minute. Basically, yes. <laughs> it scales the movie. The scales. <laughs> And yet, with all that enunciation, still, so much of his dialogue feels sometimes lost in the sort of uh, forest of his own interpretation of his character's voice, Mm -hmm. I thought. Um, It's a very... I've I've got sort of thoughts all across the map about his performance in this movie. It's both... Impressive and yet very actorly, and mm-hmm. yet, um, you know, you don't want to say admirable, but I feel like it's a, it's an accomplishment on like a technical level, and I don't know. There's a whole lot of there's a lot of considerations. For there, okay, it's at one time very much a Philip Seymour Hoffman performance that like if you like or I mean if you're someone like me who it's like he's he's probably my favorite actor um and you like you know his mannerisms his tics like the things that make a, a performance of his very distinct even if he's like you know getting lost in uh like a, a character like Truman Capote like you can still see like Philip Seymour Hoffman isms in that performance but also at the same time I think what you're getting at in like what is i guess scare quotes impressive about the performance is that he is truly playing someone out very outside of his uh, who he is as a person um, his experience like, yeah, yeah, yeah yeah um and his mannerisms and he does it rather believably he creates a, a character he doesn't play rusty as a type he mm-hmm. plays a character, which is the thing that I do find most impressive and sort of laudable about the performance. Because 
certainly at least at this time, there would have been temptation to play Rusty as a type. And I think it's mm-hmm. also, you mentioned Capote, and I think that's a good mention also, because like, and obviously Truman Capote, a real person, so there was a template there. So like, yeah. playing Truman Capote as a person is... It, but someone a, who looks, sounds, moves very differently than uh, what we think of as like Philip Seymour Hoffman, like his like, not like a like a gruff but warm personality who's like you know the that baritone uh right the beard all of that right i feel like what i'm indicating towards is a lot of superficial things but this performance it, when we say that it doesn't necessarily feel superficial when you're watching it if that makes right. any sense and also any philip seymour hoffman performance is going to feel um, or you're going to f- take away some kind of craftsman- craftsmanship away from mm-hmm. it because he's that kind of an actor. He's a very crafts- craftsmanshipy kind of actor. And mm-hmm. it's not necessarily that you see the work, but like you always, I at least, always get a sense of just like, oh, this was an undertaking for him. This Mm -hmm. was, and certainly flawless. You can very much see how this movie was pitched to probably both of the lead actors in this movie by, you know, agents and managers where it's just like, all right, get this. One guy is a homophobic security guard with a stroke and he's got a cane and he can't speak. And the other one's a drag queen. And, and, and you know, watch the sparks fly and that whole kind of thing. And it's it seems very much just like kind of odd couple-ish in its conception. And mm-hmm. you can definitely see where both De Niro and Hoffman would have taken on this project as an acting challenge. You know what I mean? Yeah. And they get I don't to work necessarily... with each other, I'm sure. Because even at this point in his career, Philip Seymour Hoffman had that kind of um like mounting right. notoriety too that like this was De Niro definitely would want to work with him. This was definitely the year that made his first made his real reputation. We'll talk about that for sure. All the other movies mm-hmm. that he did in '99 that sort of like added up to the Philip Seymour Hoffman thing that I think really, you know, first crested uh, in in '99. But yeah, you can definitely see where Hoffman would want to work with De Niro. And he talked at the time about, uh, and afterwards about how working with De Niro really made him up his game. And it kind of, you know, kicked his acting to another level. And yeah, it's a really particular conversation that we have about straight actors playing queer roles and it's something that has Mm -hmm. definitely evolved over the years and we've now arrived at a time where there's less patience i think for straight actors playing queer roles and there's Mm -hmm. a there's a large a much much more uh growing sentiment these days that queer roles should only be played by queer performers and i I'm often on the fence about that. I can I can fall on either side depending on uh on the debate. And what I'll say about it is I think you get into a different territory when you're talking about uh straight actors playing gay and what this is where a cis actor is playing a trans character. And this movie has a kind of confusing unclear 
understanding of Rusty's transness that I don't necessarily think the performance has. I feel like the good things representationally come out of the performance, if not the movie, if that makes any sense. Um, yeah, which does. is why, like, obviously we would want a trans person playing a trans character because I don't think it's the same thing as straight versus gay in terms of who is playing this character. But I think in terms of especially the time, Philip Seymour Hoffman does a good job of making that story kind of clear, even if the movie kind of flubs it. Yeah, I think there is a there's a muddiness to the distinctions that the film makes between Mm -hmm a drag you know a drag queen a gay person and a trans woman and Mm -hmm. a lot of that feels very much kind of of the time obviously schumacher who wrote the film um all is a you know is a gay person so he would have you would think more uh, you know be more attuned to these communities than a straight director Mm -hmm. and that's an assumption but you know um I do think the movie ha- like isn't ill-intended. I think no. what where it kind of steps on itself sometimes um is like you mentioned the kind of like odd coupleness of it. Like there is an aspect to this movie that feels a little sitcommy and like it leans into that sometimes. I mean, like I wouldn't go so far as to say this is queer green book. Um, I definitely wrote down green book in my notes when I when I was watching this last night. Right. It's not it's not queer green book, but it's not so far away from queer green book that I didn't think about it. Right. Like, um, I I don't know. I think that this movie is probably trying for something less toxic than green book is and green book doesn't realize how toxic it is whereas this movie just has like age problems right like this is 20 year old movie so you get the like type of 20 years ago confusion of like well there's not that much difference between gay men drag queens and trans people you know like right you mentioned earlier the ways in which it's like green book to me a it's the we're gonna find an explicitly homophobic character an explicitly bigoted character right who you know not only is you know has these like bad attitudes but like is you know says all the the bad buzzwords and has these really sort of like you know terrible conceptions of people and we're going to fix that person literally in flawless we're going to fix that person who who becomes you know, debilitated by a stroke. And to fix that person, we are going to put him in contact with that which he hates. And it does, in within the function of the film, set up the LGBTQ character as the, the implement of fixing, you know, this backwards, mm-hmm. this, you know backwards character and it puts you know that storyline burden on rusty and i think green book is more offensive in the ways in which it tries to be happier 
and it tries mm-hmm. to be to tries to sort of like gloss over all of that and to really like make things more pleasant by the end whereas this movie does still end on some pretty ragged edges you know what mm-hmm. i mean uh, you never feel like everything's gotten wrapped up in a bow and... yeah even though it has that like sitcommy like kind of pat ending to it it's not um you know it's not pl- placating or like trying to uh assert that like some solu- like it the way that green book thinks it solves racism you know mm-hmm. this movie doesn't do that Right. And I think a lot of that is Schumacher, who grew up, I think if you read any interviews or watch any interviews with Schumacher, he doesn't seem, he's one of those sort of older gay men who came of age in the, you know, pre-AIDS era, 60s and 70s and whatnot, and talks about, you know, very sort of unapologetically about sort of how things were then. And I think to a person like Schumacher, that kind of happy ending holds no i want don't want to say no interest to him but like it's not that important to him mm-hmm. that everything feels correctly wrapped up you know what i mean mm-hmm. and there's you know a raggedness to you see that in all of the scenes with the queens sort of interacting with each other not necessarily rusty's sort of core group of friends but when you know all those scenes with like the the queens clashing at the community center or I love all those scenes all of the you know sort of backbiting that happens around the flawless competition and all that kind of thing and, and they I think meet that, with a gay republican group and tell right. them to fuck off probably my favorite scene in the film yes it's, i wonderful. think it's the i think it's the one where i look at that and i'm just like oh this movie knew of the milieu in which it was in which mm-hmm. You know, made me feel good about that. So it's this is not. I didn't hate this movie. I didn't like this movie. I think this is just a movie that's not gonna age well. Period. But like, there are still things about it that are good. Like those scenes, particularly. I didn't love that Rusty left that scene saying like, "Thank you for your efforts to these people that are like." Basically telling them stop being so loudly queer. But I think um, the button on that scene is what's important. The button, yeah, the on, button that, on the, the last fuck you. thing he says is fuck off. Like, that's to me the important thing. And right. it's a thing, it's the kind of thing that wouldn't have been the button of that scene from too many other filmmakers, I don't think, at the time. So. Yes. We should mention why we added this. This wasn't originally going to be our episode this week, and you suggested that we kind of um, this was sort of Shuffle on our long some list things for around. One. Yeah, we wanted to talk about Joel Schumacher, um, right? Just passed this past week, living legend. Even it's, though he made plenty of bad movies, not uh, none thing. of which are his Batman movies, by the way. Uh, I, I we're gonna argue about that a little bit. We can um, argue about that later, and I'll win. Um, uh, I would argue I don't know if I would argue that he made more bad movies than good movies but like his filmography first of all it's very pleasingly um, uh, heterogeneous like it's very pleasingly different genres and different types and it's it's not always easy to to draw a through line through them which is great I think a mm-hmm. lot of the articles and commentary after he died talked a lot about the way he would sort of thread queerness through his movies which i think 
is definitely accurate in a lot of his movies but like i don't know if i watch a movie like the number 23 or falling down and read a whole lot of queerness in it right so like mm-hmm. it's not even like there was there just he did a lot of different types of things obviously there's queerness in the batman movies obviously there's queerness in phantom of the opera and tigerland which like god frames colin farrell and matthew davis so incredibly erotically <laughs> like it's really really something but like i don't think necessarily that we you know he makes it challenging to sum up his career in a couple sentences and i like that yeah and I think he's one of those directors, too, that when he passed away this past week, you know, it, there's a certain unplaceability of his filmography, like you're mentioning. But I also think that if people were, like, looking up his IMDb page and his credits, everybody was probably surprised by at least one movie, including myself. Like, I couldn't remember that he had done Falling Down, the, like... Very strange uh, Michael Douglas might shoot some people movie. The ones that I was surprised by were the ones that he had written. I had Mm -hmm. sort of familiarized myself with his filmography over the years enough that I don't think I was surprised by a lot of the movies that he directed, even though, like, you're right, Falling Down is a surprising one. Um, The fact that he directed... um, that movie 12, I think that was maybe a surprise. That one about all the, like, like Gossip Girl, the movie. Like, that kind of thing. Right, Chase right, Crawford right. and, and um, Emily Mead was in it and Emma Roberts was in it. But, like, the fact that he was the screenwriter on The Wiz and Car Wash and, and the original and Sparkle. Sparkle. Yeah. Like, well, those ones like surprised his, me. He stops back. writing after St. Elmo's Fire and then Flawless is his first writing credit between that so that's like 15 years basically flawless is his only solo original screenplay on his entire filmography which i think is really interesting um wait sparkle might be an exception nope sparkle was a co-written with uh howard rosenman so actually dc cab weirdly might be the exception to that rule but like <laughs> flawless is the is the outlier in that which you're right it's since seen almost fire and he does get screenplay adaptation credit on the phantom of the opera which we will definitely talk about um so flawless does stand out in that way and it and it allows you to give more authorial voice onto the film than you would for something like eight millimeter or Mm -hmm. obviously like a time to kill is very much like a Grisham thing, but he was, he managed to put his authorial voice onto things like his Batman movies, as you mentioned, Mm -hmm. or um, the movies he made with uh, the Brat Pack, like St. Elmo's Fire feels very much like a Schumacher kind of a thing. And the Lost Boys was like a big old, the Lost Boys and Phantom of the Opera are like, so they couldn't, they're very different in terms of like genre, but aesthetically they definitely feel like made by the same person to me. And it's the Lost Boys that got him the Phantom of the Opera gig, by the way. That's interesting. Explain that. I remember, um, I think it was an interview with Andrew Lloyd Webber saying, like, he'd been either friends or, like, professionally interested in Joel Schumacher um, since The Lost Boys. Um, Yeah. And that was part of why he got that gig. So, The Phantom of the Opera, 
it's been an interesting week for me with with, with the Schumacher uh, obits. I, Including the people that are like, you know what, Joel Schumacher, great filmmaker, blah, blah, blah. And I want to be like, I see you. You've said some homophobic shit in your reviews about Joel Schumacher before. Or even just like, like you didn't like this movie before this week. Like, The Phantom of the Opera... All of a sudden now, like, gay Twitter is, like, a, a light with appreciations for, the, appreciations for the Phantom of the Opera. Like, you think that movie is a piece of shit, too. And you know what? It is. It's a bad movie. It's a bad movie with two bad leads, but it's a poorly directed movie as well. And if you watch the movie, you will absolutely agree with me. I think there are things about it that are laudable. There was an anecdote going around Mini Driver tweeted this week about how <laughs> a certain actress, I mean, awesome. Um, was complaining on set about Minnie going too big in her performance as Carlotta. By the way, I don't think it's possible to go too big as Carlotta. And apparently Schumacher said to this, this quote unquote, unnamed, unnamed actress, actress is probably Emmy Rossum. <laughs> almost certainly Emmy Rossum. Um, and I love Emmy Rossum. Um, but t- basically brushed her off and was just like, honey, nobody ever came to watch someone, uh, Go play under, under the, the top. Play under the top. Yeah. And it's a great quote. And it is. And Mini Driver's super fun in that movie. It still doesn't make The Phantom of the Opera a good movie. And Part of the problem with The Phantom of the Opera is I think only Mini Driver knows what movie they're making. <laughs> yeah. Um, like even Miranda Richardson is like playing this very kind of, uh, you know, seriously. Yeah. The the other thing, and like I think you definitely see this play out, huh? Simon Callow kind of knows what movie he's in as well, but yeah, Eh, probably. Um, Part of the problem with Phantom of the Opera, or this this plays out in terms of Joel Schumacher's career. Joel Schumacher is actually a studio director. Most of the movies he makes are in a big studio, so I think a lot of the problems you see are like studio influences kind of getting in the way of what he's doing which is why i think his batman movies are kind of like a miracle that or like i don't know the studio executives were like on poppers and said you know what that's fine um, (laughs) for these movies um well you get why he was given all of the rope he got on batman and robin because batman forever as we've talked about on this podcast before was a massive success just like was the summer blockbuster of 1995 that everybody had to see it was like so incredibly time yep it was for somebody like me who was like mainlining mtv it was all over mtv all it was a huge sea change too in terms of like merchandising across different things like uh, not just like toys and action figures and t-shirts but like that's like one of the first like soundtracks that's like sold as a part of the marketing package mm-hmm. you know Kiss what i mean not sold like literally yep. cash to dollars but like projected onto the masses um right pitched to the masses um remember when soundtracks to movies not only had lead singles but like second and third singles Yes. <laughs> Amazing. That Batman Forever soundtrack, because it had Kiss from a Rose, and then it had the U2 song, Hold Me, Thrill Me, Kiss Me, Kill Me, and I want to say it even had a third. And then Batman and Robin had also the R. Had. Kelly song, mm-hmm. and The End is the Beginning is the End, and a Goo Goo Doll song, I'm pretty sure. It had um, a lot. Um, it had it, it but had all two released different singles. Smashing Crazy. Pumpkin songs. Yes, that's right. It did. Um, all right. Let's go into this now before, and then we can, like, 
dedicate the podcast to Flawless. I think Batman Forever is a head and shoulders better movie than Batman and Robin. And I don't think that me saying that is me reacting poorly and self-loathingly to (laughs) Batman and Robin. I like the queer aspects of Batman and Robin. I love what the fuck Uma Thurman is doing in that movie as Poison Ivy. She knew she knew the assignment and she knows exactly there's always some character actress in Joel Schumacher movies that know exactly the movie that they're making. It's like he only directs them or something. The um bat nipples are great. The bat cod pieces are great. The butt shot in the opening credits. Love it. But like everything to do with Arnold Schwarzenegger in that movie is Bad to embarrassing. Oh, I, I think know it's that camp like excellence. It's wonderful. I don't think Arnold Schwarzenegger is equipped to do camp excellence. I really don't. That's the thing. That is a movie that is hyper aware of Arnold Schwarzenegger's limitations and uses them to its advantage and gives him the stupidest shit to say. I think it's like, is he bad? Sure, but this is a movie that knows that this performer can't act and like works very well within the limited. Uh, you know, framework that that actor can kind of offer, and like, here's what I will say: down to a science. I think it's great. I'm I'm perfectly happy camping up Batman and making it feel fun and whatever. I think the line where you cross is making something so stupid. LOL. You know what I mean? Like, doesn't to me equate to camp excellence like i i just there is a line in that movie where at some point it just becomes too stupid to enjoy (laughs) no no there is that line doesn't exist i mean the here's the thing that i don't know i think all of the also alicia silverstone is bad in it she's i don't think she's bad Um, overall but she's bad in it yes um uh Yes, I agree with that. However, I think in terms of just, like, simple, like, plot movements, I think Batman and Robin makes way more, like, sense. Even for all of the lunacy of that movie, there's some stuff that happens in Batman Forever that the last time I watched it, I was like, wait, what? What's happening? I don't understand how we got from A to B. Um, I like the kind of that Batman Forever can be, you know, campy and, like, bright and vibrant, and then there is actually kind of this undercurrent of darkness and, like, violence to it that is really fascinating to me. And Batman and Robin kind of has none of that. It's like it goes whole hog into this There's just no gravity to it. I think it's a lot of fun. I will say this. I've seen Batman Forever a lot more recently than I've seen Batman and Robin. I probably haven't seen Batman and Robin in the 2000s. And if HBO Max would ever get its fucking shit together and make itself available on Roku, I can watch both of those movies. Right now, I can only watch HBO Max on my computer, and I'm working when I'm on my computer. So (laughs) it's not possible. So at some point, soon hopefully... I will watch Batman and Robin again, and maybe I will have a different opinion now. But like, I for I now it still works I'm as like a ground. movie, just like on movie terms in a way that a lot of superhero movies today do not. Um, I also, all right, we're not going to get down this rabbit hole, but I will say <laughs> it holding it up against the Nolan movies to me is always 
very stupid. The Nolan movies are doing something completely different, and it's not bad that they're doing something completely different. They you you have to do some like you have to differentiate. You have to go a different direction when you're starting something over. That's why the Ben Affleck movies make no sense because it's not doing anything differently. It's not starting over. It's it's just a poor imitation of other things. That is um, the problem with the Joel Schumacher movies, and I think why the perception of those movies was so soured immediately because they do try to have a through line with the Tim Burton movies. And those are like uh, the Tim Burton movies. People forget that that's a huge reason why cultural sentiment to the Schumacher movies is so bad because like it, they weren't, they didn't used to be compared to the Nolan movies, obviously, but like they were always compared to the Tim Burton movies and always in the negative because they're such a complete, you know, pivot point it's more riffing on the like campiness and the vibrancy of the adam west series um versus like the burton ones were so influenced by what frank miller was doing um in the uh, graphic novels for that he did for batman Um, but i will say batman forever or uh, batman returns is more of a bridge to the schumacher movies than people remember with like the penguin like the little penguin army and mm-hmm. like some of the you know sort of like visual stuff with the Christopher Walken character like that's it there's i don't know there's definitely more connective tissue there than yeah. i think people realize no there definitely is and like you can see why they leaned into like the merchandising and like the marketing for Batman Forever because also we forget Batman Returns freaked people the fuck out. <laughs> um, yeah, and was yeah. considered like so violent they think they lost money on it because of how dark it was that they pivot completely into this like Joel Schumacher's vision, which is like bright. You know, you can make toys off of it and, like, yep. not scare parents who are taking their children to see this. Right. Well, here, all right, here's how I'm going to tie this back to Flawless, okay? I think a big part of the kind of – the tenor of the conversation around Batman and Robin in both directions has, I think, a lot to do with things that not, are not necessarily to do with the film, which is I think a lot of people nowadays who find – not only maybe they don't love the darkness of the Nolan films, but what they really don't love is the aggrandizement of the Nolan films by the Nolan fans who are, you know, straight male, you know, mean and are always sort of like shitting on the Schumacher movies for being what they are. And I think you have a lot of people who don't like those fans. And so a lot of the, the, temperatures get a little hotter when you're defending something like Batman and Robin from that because you feel like you really have to like fight for this movie's place of respect. And I think that comes into play when you're talking about an actor like Philip Seymour Hoffman taking on a queer character and and straight actors playing queer characters mm. where um I think one of the things that people object the most to is this idea of applauding those performances for their bravery which i don't think is a thing that happens anymore i think it's i think whenever you see people nowadays get mad at 
straight actors playing gay parts, they bring up this thing about like, oh, and people will tell them they're being so brave. I'm like, I don't know if people have done that since like a decade ago. But I like mean, the maybe history the of old stuffy farty academy members that still like even that have like, their I, head in centuries past might be like, that was brave or like a degree even, of difficulty points or something like that. I think that might still be a thing with a certain set of people, but for larger actual cultural conversation People don't call things brave anymore. Like even when Sean Penn won the Oscar for Milk, I don't think I don't think the general tone of praise for that performance is oh, isn't Sean Penn brave? I don't think that was part of that. I really don't. Hmm. I mean, that was a dozen years ago, so maybe I'm misremembering. Right. But like, <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. I think Sean Penn got that Oscar. On his own sort of Sean Penn momentum. The Academy loves him. The Academy loves everything he does. And I just don't rem- recall a lot of just like, I can't believe how brave Sean Penn was to take on that character. Like, I don't know. I don't know. But right. it definitely was a thing that happened a lot. And it was super irksome. So, like, I get why that's still sort of like part of the bedrock of, you know, the dissatisfaction with this kind of thing. I think, I think often... I do still come down on the I, on the side of actors are actors and actors part of the craft of acting is to step into lives that are not your own and to sort of seek out these experiences in playing these parts and part of me and I know it's an ideal that runs into real problems and I totally get that but like there's an ideal to me mm-hmm. that I mean not to do the whole Scarlett Johansson I want to play a tree thing but like that any actor should be able to in theory play any part if you are really saying that it is that. an ideal though but like the Scarlett Johansson thing she was saying that like it's real life like trans people can't play themselves um which is true like still it's very difficult for uh and and you also don't see trans trans performers playing cis characters all that often. Um, so it's like if you really want to have balance, there should be a balance. But I get I what you're saying with, with like, it, is it true in the ideal that everybody can play, you know, something? You know, I get I get what you're saying. Um, but for in terms of flawless, though, I don't know. I don't. I certainly don't remember Philip Seymour Hoffman being like, look at this brave performance. But then again, this is also coming the year after happiness where it's like, that might actually be a brave performance where he's like sexually harassing people by calling them and jerking off. Yeah. Um, And it's like, just like, it takes kind of a real lack of vanity to just like play that on like this like really off-putting character as honestly as possible and also still be funny um yeah i think like there's kind of an air of philip seymour hoffman at this time that is like this is the wonderkind this is the one who this is the performer who like takes those leaps right generally yeah we should probably do the plot description before we get yes, too far. Yes, yes. To loop us back to the to the film at hand. Once again, we're here to talk about Flawless, written and directed by Joel Schumacher, starring Robert De Niro and Philip Seymour Hoffman. It basically focuses on them, but then you have a whole apartment building of characters played, mm-hmm. you know, partly by former Rent castmates, uh, Daphne yes. Rubenbega and Wilson Jermaine Heredia are in this movie. 
and then like some of the other characters are played by Skip Sudith, uh, Wander de Jesus. Um, oh, what's his name? The one guy in it who I totally recognized from uh, Fame, the other boy from Fame in that ah. like little love triangle. Um, Barry Miller, the guy who plays this sort of weaselly guy at the desk, right? Yes, yes. Um, but uh, Flawless opened uh, Thanksgiving weekend in 1999. Thanksgiving weekend, weekend. That's so funny. Right? Yeah. It doesn't seem like a holiday weekend of any kind kind of a movie. <laughs> so, Joseph. Yes. To get us back on track with the film we're here to talk about. Indeed. Would you like to give us a 60-second plot description of Flawless? I'm going to do my best. Your 60-second plot description of Flawless starts now. Uh, Philip Seymour Hoffman plays Rusty, a New York City drag queen and trans woman who's trying to save up money for gender affirmation surgery, which is hard to do when you live in a crummy flophouse hotel where drug dealers are constantly ransacking the units looking for stolen cash. On one such raid, a friend of Rusty's is murdered, and one of the residents, a virulently homophobic former security guard named Walter Kuntz, played by Robert De Niro, tries to intervene, but he has a stroke. The stroke doesn't improve his disposition very much, but he begrudgingly uh, goes to Rusty for singing lessons that might help him rehabilitate his speech. The two have always hated each other. They hate each other on sight. And at first they go through a largely predictable thaw where they each learn about each other and bridge the gap between them, which comes in handy when the drug dealers realize that Rusty has had their stolen money all along and they try to kill her. And Koontz intervenes and they end up saving each other. And isn't that a mostly nice story about a victimized trans woman and the cop who will still probably keep saying faggot but nicely in the end and that's time okay yeah yeah Interesting movie i kind of like this movie more if it's like not pitched as this like basically buddy comedy or of like you know yeah again it's not a movie that solves homophobia or transphobia or it doesn't think that it is but like i kind of like it as like this is life in this shitty new york apartment building where like you do have a whole like slew of different characters in there there's like roger ebert's review described it as like a tennessee williams collection of of Sort of wayward souls, (laughs) which I thought was kind of funny. My Um, thing, here's my thing, is I think this movie has the three men and a baby problem, which is three men and a baby, great movie, great concept for a movie, really good sort of, you know, funny comedy that onto it for the middle portion of the movie, they have grafted a drug smuggling subplot where (laughs) the men have to... Like, they end up with a delivery of heroin, and they have to get rid of it, and they have to get these drug dealers off their back, and the cops are coming after them, and there's this whole bizarre middle section of the movie that is about that, when it's like, you're a movie about three single men who get a baby they have to take care of. Like, I don't understand why we need to be have this thing become about drug dealers and cops, and that's sort of how I felt about Flawless. It fits better and flawless because of the sort of like the the building that they're in and the sort of like rundown conditions and you can sort Mm -hmm. of like see where it would it arises from that organically but i still feel like why am i wasting all this time with like rory cochran's character who like (laughs) 
runs afoul of these drug dealers and gets the shit beat out of him for it. But like Rory Cochran's character doesn't have too much to do with Philip Seymour Hoffman or Robert De Niro in this movie at all. I don't understand why like I'm following the, this drug dealer plot. Like the it, drug it does not dealer is it. like the cartooniest thing about the movie. His name is literally Mr. Z. Mr. Z. Like, yeah. He should be Mr. E, so that it could be like, welcome to the stage, Mr. E. (laughs) Um, Oh, here's my other, this is a question I had in my notes, and maybe I was just not paying correct attention. Does Rusty have a drag name that we hear in the movie? You see a poster, but I think Rusty's stage name is just Rusty, if I remember correctly. I just watched it yesterday, but I guess I wasn't paying enough attention. Yeah. Um, Rusty, she's more of like an MC. Of a show, it seems like, and she plays Which the is piano a thing. for her friends like, like who actually sing live. Yeah, it, I the drag show to me, the little we saw of it. That's the other thing is like we spend all this time on this drug dealing subplot when we could have had a lot more to do with the seeing more of the drag shows and seeing more of the mm-hmm. like you know the community center stuff. And I get and that all like, of the community center stuff is great and fantastic, and you can see like the root of like. Rusty and Rusty's friends are the, like, campy, funny singing queens, and then they have this, like, rivalry with the, like, edgy queens who, like, do, like, dark makeup and piercings, and, like, they hate each other, like, the quintessential, like, palatable versus... Uh, spooky queens. And I there's guess, the one sort of like administrative queen who tries to sort of keep the peace. And they, when all of these two groups start uh, sort of brawling with each other at the one moment, <laughs> the the peacekeeper tries to call. She's like radios in. Like, I need some butch queens here right away. And finally she's just like, lesbian or whatever. She's like, dykes, I need dykes. And like, <laughs> and then, you know, the lesbians run in and intervene and it's like it's obviously playing on stereotypes but it's also quite funny there's also like yes there's a lot of stereotypes in this movie but like there's a lot of flashes of authenticity too in a way that i don't think there were many films showing in 1999 i'm pretty sure that this is one of the first movies i ever saw with gay characters in a theater um that was oh, like i didn't see a the, I gay mean, I, movie not yeah. just like here's this background gay person we're gonna make fun of um right but, this movie uh, came out, what was it, four years after Tu Wong Fu and three years after The Birdcage, which obviously both of those are comedies. This is mm-hmm. not a comedy, but it definitely, there's there was sort of a continuum. And those are interesting films, too, with like, obviously, in Tu Wong Fu, the three drag queens are played by straight actors, and in The Birdcage, uh, obviously, Nathan Lane is a queer performer, and... But I think in all of those, for me as a viewer, as a teenage viewer, sort of through those years, I it was in it was you know valuable to me to see these characters in movies, even though I probably was far from being able to you know admit to myself even at that time that this was a community to which I would one day be a part of slash mm-hmm. you know around so much and i think the continuum of that sort of went through flawless which is not a movie i saw at the time i saw it for the first time last night and wasn't necessarily a movie i wanted to see obviously because i never saw it 
And I'm sure a large part of that reason was, you know, the birdcage and two Wong Fu mm-hmm. fun, happy comedies. And maybe I wasn't ready for something that was less comedic than that. And then I, cause I, I also remember in 2001 when Hedwig came out and yeah. I was very sort of like, I was not ready for that. And it took me several years before I ended up seeing, I don't think I saw Hedwig until shortly before short bus came out. And, um, by then, obviously, I was, you know, <laughs> more equipped in my life to <laughs> accept those kind of things as part of, uh, you know, my world. But Hedwig, I remember being like, when I would see those like stills in Entertainment Weekly or whatever, that sort of shot of him like screaming into the mic with the big hair and the wings and whatnot. And I was just like, oh, this is scary to me. <laughs> and I wasn't. What is this going to make me realize about myself? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Um. The, it, it is interesting kind of positioning this positioning this movie opposite uh like to Wong Fu and the birdcage because like not to use like a a, a two dollar word but like this feels like a grittier response to it like it's very like New York City dingy yes. in a way that like maybe it was somewhat of a response to those type of those movies in particular it definitely uh, felt like schumacher community it definitely felt like schumacher being like this is how it used to be this is how new york you know this Mm -hmm. isn't this isn't happy and this isn't miami or whatever like you know candy colored the birdcage or whatever it's you know this is hard city living and and rusty is a hardened character a you know Mm -hmm. a tough broad by necessity and the other queens they're not mean sometimes they're mean queens at the very i did like at the very beginning when we see de niro's character sort of walk up to the front desk of this uh hotel slash apartment building I, I never quite know how to you know conceptualize we're just like are you paying by the week like what's happening anyway um he walks up to the desk and then the other queen sort of like hiss up behind him and like just like whisper mean things about him. And you realize, of course, at some point it's just like, oh, this is because he's always an asshole to them. But in the yes. way that like it's introduced that way, I'm just like, oh, mean queens just like roving the streets and they found someone <laughs> to be mean to. I would watch the fuck out of that movie. Yeah. Um, However, though, Rusty does get to speak to her experience quite a bit in this movie, and maybe that's what I felt like I hadn't really seen. Yeah, um, that's fair. When I saw this movie in, uh, I guess, middle school. Um, That, like, and some of that is, like, yes, it's... Rust, it's this two-hander for the most part when we're not, like, you know, hanging out with Mr. Z. Um, <laughs> so it's like, it could do, like, I I want to see that with more of the queens. Like, Wilson Germain Heredia is probably the queen that we get to see the most of, including He's so delightful scene. in this movie. I really like him. With his weird, like, cufflinks that shoot bees. That's what I was going to say. It's <laughs> truly a great, like, outfit gag. She wears these cufflinks in, um, like the a party scene, like a birthday party scene, or no, it's a it's uh, Walter's graduation, right? Yes. Uh, Rusty throws Walter a party um, when he is done with his voice therapy training. Nice big um, titties cake. 
<laughs> and she's wearing basically a country western outfit, but she has these cufflinks that are little tiny guns that shoot BBs, <laughs> which shoot a real BBs, truly a gag. But then she shoots her friend accidentally, and it in becomes the this whole thing. <laughs> and she gets maybe one of the best lines in the movie, where she says, she's sobbing, she says, Rusty, I accidentally shot, shot my, my friend, friend in the tit with my cufflinks. <laughs> it's really good. I had never, I don't think I had seen uh, Wilson Shemin Heredia in another film. A non-rent film? Yeah, a non-rent film. It was interesting. Shout and also, obviously, episode. the fact that Daphne Rubin Vega was uh, not cast as Mimi in the Rent movie. So it was inter- it was nice to see uh, a Rent reunion on on film that I hadn't seen before. That's rent a- union. What did you think of that subplot with uh, De Niro's character going to the um, the dance, sort of like jazz dance club I mean, thing I, and he's i love the like tango thing because like it's not like it's annoying to be like look at what they do have in common but like walter <laughs> is a tango dancer so it's like he does have like some level of creativity and performance um yeah but he has this girlfriend who is basically just using him for money wanted he doesn't realize that's what it is yeah but daphne rubin vega's character he like calls her a prostitute to her face when she's yeah. not, and then like she's still interested in him. I hate that. Um, yes, she's uh, very much that. the sort of the sweet, um, patient. She's you know she's him having the stroke doesn't affect her any. She sees him yeah. for him, and she's you know constantly sort of being put. Yeah, but down she doesn't him. see him for him because he's also right. misogynist and she doesn't right. seem to care or right. notice um and then they end up together yeah yeah just i to feel show like us that walter is becoming more sensitive again things in the movie that maybe if they were given more of the time that was allotted to the drug dealer shenanigans maybe we could have seen a fuller and more satisfying mm-hmm. picture of what's going she, on over there. She does um because like when they're basically in bed together he's like, "Oh, I don't have money to pay you." And she does like rebut against that. It's like that's not what this is. Um, right. But still, yeah, I hate that plot line. <laughs> yeah, I don't like it either. And it's and it's it's not like I don't want the De Niro character to have any kind of inner life or like backstory or anything like that but like obviously he's the less interesting character to me i think it's necessary that we see him as a human or else he just becomes this like you know cypher who's you know slurring the word faggot Mm -hmm. all over the place and like i don't want that either but I wanted more of Rusty. I wanted more of the Queens. I wanted more of the mm-hmm. drag shows. And like obviously that's my sensibility. So obviously that's why I'm at. But I also think like the movie would be improved by that. Yeah, and Walter would be a more interesting <laughs> character if there was a real sense of accountability, not just like, oh, they become friends and he doesn't say faggot as much anymore. Yeah. Um to the point where it's like even at the end of the movie, for Walt's health care because of this whole shootout he gets shot again um which like we can already assume that walt maybe has some type of health care 
based on the fact that he's been getting care. I was going to say, if um, he was a paid stroke, security guard for some place, like, I would feel like there's some kind of insurance. Pension system. Like, that That was confusing to me, but it's frustrating at the end of the movie that Rusty gives Walt yes. the stashed money Very that was, like, all for the shootout anyway, but yeah. it was saving it for her affirmation surgery. That it pissed me off at the end and like doesn't really i think it certainly paints walt in a light that there's not really any real sense of accountability and all of this burden is being placed on rusty it's a giving treeification of rusty's character and you're right mm-hmm. i don't love it um there are a couple ways in which this movie doesn't go where i had like assumed it was going to go i thought for sure once we see the character of Tommy, who is De Niro's cop friend, uh-huh. and who comes and visits him and whatnot, and, you know, sort of like, you know, looks cockeyed out the window at the apartment of drag queens. I was like, oh, okay, here's what's going to happen. This guy is going to eventually rough up Rusty or say something horrible or be really, like, nasty and homophobic to the drag queen characters and Kuntz is going to have his big sort of moment of humanity and defend the Queens against this guy who is acting like he used to act. And that doesn't happen, which I think is, is less cliched and good. Tommy weirdly Mm -hmm. becomes like part of this weird patchwork as, you know, Ebert said, Tennessee Williams kind of, you know, collection of people. He's there at the, at the party, the aforementioned BB assault party. And, um where there's also a background couple of like we assume these people live in a building but there's like these two straight people that are doing poppers yes all of a sudden (laughs) just like descend into making out like that's not what poppers and also the guy from the deli who comes to deliver food and is like super hot so they get him to like stick around and take his shirt off yeah like also very like there's a whole thread in the movie about carmine the pizza guy Yes, Carmine. Yes. But the other way that it didn't go quite ha- as I expected, because I, I definitely knew that with all the, you know, drug dealer plots, I'm like, oh, okay, Kuntz is going to end up saving Rusty's life. And, like, he does, but that ending is a lot more of them saving each other and them both fighting and them both sort of, like, you know, mm-hmm. getting through that moment together that I thought was better than what i was expecting it to be yeah 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 so that's cool should we talk about philip seymour hoffman in 1999 yes we should we definitely should (laughs) the big thing that kept this movie in the conversation is he was a sag nominee for best actor right which i don't remember following what i was thinking following that at the time but i had it had to have been a pretty big surprise because Mm -hmm. he wasn't he obviously wasn't a golden globe nominee that is of course the year where the top two sort of going back and forth as to who's going to win the oscar it was spacey and american beauty denzel washington in the hurricane with russell crowe in the insider as like the critics pick um Mm -hmm. and then the ultimate oscar nominees then would would end up being Richard Farnsworth in The Straight Story, who was, like, obviously sentimental fave. Critics also really loved that performance. That was, like, the non-spooky David Lynch movie. And then... It was rated G. Yes. Uh, 
then surprise nominee, not surprise nominee, but um, Sean Penn ends up getting nominated for Sweet and Lowdown. It seemed for a while like the big awards hook of that movie was only going to be Samantha Morton, whose mm-hmm. character is deaf. I don't remember. No, very she much. she doesn't speak. She's she doesn't mute, speak. I believe. Okay. Um, and then Penn gets the nomination as well. It's his second nomination after Dead Man Walking, and it's sort of it's the it's the first of his big sort of run up to ultimately winning. He's nominated in '99, and then again in 2001, and then again in 2003, and wins in 2003 for Mr. Gripper. Um, but at the SAGs, instead of Penn and Farnsworth, it is um. Wait, who's the other one? Oh, Jim Carrey. Philip Seymour Hoffman and Jim Carrey for Man in the Moon. Carrey, who had won the Golden Globe musical or comedy for Man in the Moon. It was his second consecutive Golden Globe after winning for The Truman Show. I think, I'm trying to remember, I think by this point, people were like, well, if they didn't give Carrey the Oscar nomination for The Truman Show, they're not going to do it for Man in the Moon. And so I think both the Carrey nomination at SAG and the Philip Seymour Hoffman nomination for Flawless, I think people were like, cool but i don't think it's going to stick around for oscar and ultimately Mm -hmm. that was correct but this was like the tip of the spear for this big 1999 year for philip seymour hoffman he ends up winning national board of review supporting actor national society of film critics for supporting actor and that was back when you see it less these days Mm -hmm. back when actors would win Critics awards for multiple performances, especially in the supporting category. Kate Blanchett in a one. Uh, Didn't Julianne Moore also in ninety nine get maybe at least one of these for um, for um, Ideal Husband and Ideal Husband and Magnolia uh, and Map of the End World. Of the affair. Yeah, like they would tie them all right together. So Hoffman wins for Flawless and Magnolia and Talented Mr. Ripley. The latter two being supporting performances but they sort of like uh or was it was flawless even wrapped up in those or was it just his supporting flawless he won uh or was nominated or maybe he did win it's the imdb credit doesn't it's attached to flawless but i'd have a i considering they only put him in supporting actor for this movie i bet that the true credit is for all three but national board of review and national society he wins for magnolia and talented mr ripley just those specifically um which is so interesting to me because those are movies well a magnolia is its own like can of worms in terms in terms of the oscar race and what performances were like getting considered because it's nine thousand people in that cast um and then talented mr ripley is ultimately like I mean, it got, like, five nominations, right? Five or six nominations. So it's like, the Academy didn't hate it, or they, like, didn't snub the movie, but, like, it could have gotten and should have gotten way more than it did. Yes. Um, But it's interesting to me because, like, Philip Seymour Hoffman, who's still winning prizes for this and getting talked about, is ultimately overshadowed by two other co-stars in the same movies. So it's like his 99 kind of all blurs together where he's... Not that to say he's diminishing his own chances, like he has control over that, but like right. it all kind of blurs together without any critical mass. Right. Both of those movies get one. supporting actor nominations, but they're mm-hmm. not him. It's Jude Law and it's 
uh, Jude Law for Ripley, Tom Cruise for Magnolia. The other thing, ducking back to the SAGs for half a second, Magnolia also gets a cast in a motion picture nomination. Mm-hmm. So, so Hoffman actually gets two SAG nominations that year. Um, and I kind of think that that Best Actor nomination kind of amasses, I mean, A, it's a good performance, so it's not like, you know, we're saying, like, what the fuck. Right. But I think because it's harder for him to get nominated for the ones that he's winning prizes for right because a because of the co-star thing but like right he's not only splitting his own vote but he's splitting the votes of his co-stars like that would have been a real tall order for him to get and it feels like this is kind of a response that nomination is a response to it like he got through for something or there was like a right collected yeah random effort to get him nominated for this because yeah the flawless nomination doesn't have anything else pulling on it so yeah Mm -hmm. but the other thing is so magnolia you can obviously see why magnolia gets nominated for the sag beyond the fact that it's you know a very worthy nominee um it's a massive cast full of you know very awards friendly actors um cruise philip baker hall um jason robards two-time oscar winner william h macy who had just been nominated for fargo so that makes a ton of sense the fact that, I mean, we talk about, you know, Ripley got some Oscar nominations, but it could have been much more. The fact that Ripley doesn't get a SAG nomination for cast really tells you the delay in which people had in appreciating Ripley. Like, it really didn't mm-hmm. come for several years later, the fact. Because, like, a movie that not only is as good as Ripley is, but when your cast is Matt Damon, Gwyneth Paltrow, uh, uh, Jude Law, Kate Blanchett, Blanchett. Philip Seymour Hoffman... Um, you know, James Rebhorn, whatever, like all these like great character actors in addition. But like when your stars are that and your movie is that good and you still can't get a SAG ensemble nomination, it really tells you the, it just people, like critics and regular people were just late to that movie in general. Mm-hmm. They were just, even with, you know, the nominations that it got, they were still Don't late to it. Don't you think some of that response is a kind of quick anti-English patient sentiment. Uh, it was a lot of the, this talented Mr. Ripley was the really perfect not storm similar to the English patient in any way, but it's just the same filmmaker. It was like, the perfect storm of fatigue. It was Anthony Minghella fatigue. It was Matt Damon fatigue. It was Gwyneth Paltrow fatigue. It was, it wasn't Kate Blanchett fatigue, but like, she was also, you know, yeah, Kate Blanchett will leave Blanchett Everywhere out. in a bunch of small roles in right. movies that are good. Right. But, like, Blanchett was or another prestige-y, one. Oh, you did mention Blanchett. Blanchett in 2001 with all the different mm-hmm. supporting nominations. But, like, Talented Mr. Ripley really hit all of these moments at the same time where both critics and the public were like, we did that with them. We did the Matt Damon thing. We did the mm-hmm. Gwyneth Paltrow thing. We did the Anthony Mangella thing. Enough. And... It really reminds you how situational movie awards are, how circumstantial movie awards are, and you don't have any distance. You are judging it in the moment. And that is the biggest reason why we look at Oscars and, and you know, even, you know, only a few years in the past and just like are like, what? And it's because it's just... You can't mm-hmm. ever see the forest for the trees. You are always in the middle of this moment. I think nowadays, because we focus on them so much and because they get so much attention, there's a lot of like instant 
uh, judgment in that regard. Whereas, like, instantly, you're just like, Green Book, come on. And you're just like, you know in the moment that, like, this is going to look so terrible in a few years. And, but, like, I don't think we had that kind of accelerant back then, right? Like, I think... Mm -hmm. I mean, definitely there were people at the time who saw the Academy Award nominations in 99 and Best Picture and whatever, and were like, huh, Green Mile and Cider House Rules. Huh? You know, interesting. <laughs> but, like, even then, people looked at The Sixth Sense and were like, bad nomination. Bad nominee. Shouldn't be a Best Picture nominee. And stupid. now, That's hindsight stupid. on that Why? has gone the other way. Hindsight mm-hmm. on that one is a lot kinder. So, like, these things fluctuate. And, like, and the shift. insider was also like, considered boring or stuffy or like too long right right insider had that very la confidential thing of like critics love it but like it's not a populist movie even though at the very like la confidential i'm pretty sure made money i don't know about the insider but um pretty sure the insider lost a lot of money. yeah i don't know yeah michael man every michael man movie is (laughs) crazy expensive yeah and and by and large not super uh uh lucrative on the other end but anyway yeah so hoffman super hot this year but like it's your classic super hot but doesn't break through to oscar Mm -hmm. kind of a year but like in these roles that are just for a while because it was like capote was its own freight train but it was his first nomination where it was like at the point when Capote happens, he was already one of those actors that were like, when is this going to happen? Right. And you like, you know that he's going to be nominated at some point, um, but he just never gets arrested. And I think it's because he was being brilliant in like material that's never going to, for a host of reasons, get him nominated. Like Magnolia, the cast is too huge. Um, even though he like grounds that movie... It's like the flashier thing of Tom Cruise is going to be what gets recognized for it. Yeah. Um, All right. I'm pulling up. Happiness is never going to happen in a million years. Right. right. I'm pulling up the the filmography now just to sort of take our listeners on a quick little journey through. What was what do you think the first thing you ever noticed film Seymour Hoffman in was? Uh, Probably Twister. Okay. Based on like what I was seeing. For me, it was Scent of a Woman. And I always, it took Mm -hmm. me a while to like him because his character in Scent of a Woman is so loathsome. He's such a little worm in that movie. Um, So that took me a while. But yeah, Scent of a Woman is 92. Twister, though, Twister, and he's also in, um, briefly in Heart 8, which was the first Paul Thomas Anderson movie, kicking off a very, you know, lucrative and and rich working relationship that those two had uh 97 then boogie nights which is the the first level breakthrough for him because that is a you know small supporting character but one who is memorable another queer character Mm -hmm. it's interesting how many queer characters he's played over the years um and so that is a character and a performance that really stands out. So then we move to 98, where he's in um, Next Stop Wonderland, which is a Brad Anderson movie. He's in Lebowski, playing um, the the titular Lebowski's uh, assistant. Very sort of like, you know, 
fastidious, persnickety character. Very fun to watch. He's in Happiness, as you've mentioned. He's in Patch Adams, which, okay. Patch Adams playing the same character as his Scent of a Woman character. Oh, is that true? I don't yes. know if Patch I've seen Patch Adams. Patch Adams is a Scent of a Woman sequel, basically, <laughs> with Philip Seymour Hoffman being the through line. Amazing. So, 99, we've been talking about Flawless Magnolia, Talented Mr. Ripley, wins a bunch of uh, critics' awards, gets the SAG nomination. Like, that's a level up for sure. 2000, he's in two more uh, ensemble movies. He's really, like, he is your go-to guy Mm -hmm. for ensemble movies. He's in State and Maine, the David Mamet movie, and then he's in My Beloved Almost Famous, playing Lester Bangs in a performance that, if it had come after... Capote, if it had come after Oscar had already anointed him, there is no way it would have missed out on a supporting actor nomination. It is the Do platonic- we think he was sixth place? Because I do think before Capote, that is the performance that he was closest to being nominated for. I My only uh, counter to that is he didn't get anything anywhere he for it. He got critics prizes, I thought. Am I remembering incorrectly? Let me... He was at least me. praised to the heavens in a way that is like... He, he was always definitely felt like praised. A spoiler. He, and, and it's, as I was about to say, it is the platonic ideal of a supporting actor-nominated role, which is, it is in a movie that is an Oscar fave, it's nominated in other characters, and every time he's on screen, his character gets a big old spotlight on him. And, all right, Almost Famous, the cast was nominated for the SAG Award. He gets a Satellite nomination for Supporting Actor. But, like, that's it. The Satellites is the only only, uh, award he gets. For almost famous, that is that is why I, I would I would prize. Hmm. No, he didn't. Get wrong, then. and it's and it's a real surprise because you know obviously there was a ton of awards attention on that. McDormand and Kate Hudson both get nominated, and that's where the I guess the acting attention kind of settled. Even though Hoffman's worthy of a nomination, Crudup's worthy of a nomination. It's just such a good movie. I mentioned this on Twitter the other day, but uh, by this time it'll be maybe a week old, but there is a fantastic Vulture interview with Patrick Fugit where he tells some really, really great stories about uh, working on Almost Famous, and it makes you love everybody who worked on that movie so much like even more, and I already loved everything about it, so definitely seek that out. Uh... 2001's Quiet for Philip Seymour Hoffman. 2002, so again, it's um, ensemble stuff like Punch Drunk Love. Although Punch Drunk Love, he's, it's a pretty spotlight kind of a antagonist role. But mm-hmm. he's part of the ensemble in 25th Hour. He's really good in that, playing, again, a wormy little academic. So, you know, maybe back in that uh, Send of a Woman box. He's in Red Dragon as uh, muckraking Freddie Lowndes. He gets a very memorable death scene in Red Dragon, a movie that is mostly a big old disappointment because of its director, Brett Ratner. Uh, he's also in a movie called Love Liza, directed by Todd Luiso, who, which is a movie I've never seen, but everybody who has seen it seems to be really fond of. Uh, Scripted by his brother. Oh, that's interesting. Uh then 2003, again, Ensemble, Cold Mountain. He's also in a movie called Owning Mahoney that I've never seen before. But again, good Gambling reviews. Gambling movie, right? What's that? Gambling movie, right? I believe so. Yes, uh, he's a gambling addict in that movie. Um, Mini Driver's also in that movie. And 
2004, he sort of like eschews all the critical critics bait and decides to be in Along Came Polly. And that is one of those performances that I remember after he died, people being like, you know what he's really good in actually is Along Came Polly. And it's sort of the, you know, the counter programming to a lot of his stuff. And then in 2000, uh, 2005, Capote comes along and it changes the narrative in terms of accolades for him completely where all mm-hmm. of a sudden now he does start to get recognized he's nominated in 2007 for charlie wilson's war the only thing about that movie that panned out um he's nominated the next year for doubt in supporting actor he gets nominated one more time for the master in 2012 another paul thomas anderson movie and in general becomes a big oscar fave he's one it's one of those examples of you know, what does he got to do to get an Oscar nomination? And then it happens, and it's like, what does he got to do to not get an Oscar nomination? Because he's, <laughs> he becomes, like, kind of an awards magnet. But And the answer is, what does he have to do to not get an, an Oscar nomination is to, once again, compete with himself. Because, like, the year of Charlie Wilson's war, he also has The Savages and Before the Devil Knows You're Dead. Year of Doubt is also Synecdoche, New York. So it's like, it always, like, comes back it always came back around to him when he's like kind of unavoidable in the conversation because he has multiple like hands in the pot i guess it's weird that three of his last five movies are hunger games movies Uh, what a fucking bummer man and it's not that he's bad in those and i still i'll stand by catching fire i think catching fire is a very good movie but um it's weird that, like, that's the note that he went out on. He was also in uh, that movie, A Most Wanted Man, the John le Carré adaptation by Anton He's Corbin. And, incredible in that. Yeah. Uh, in general, a movie I wanted to be maybe better than it was. I think people mm-hmm. wanted it to be, like, the next Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy. And Yeah, he really wasn't. elevates it. Yeah. Uh, Rachel McAdams is also in that movie. Robin Wright, I believe, is also in that movie. I don't remember a ton about it, but yeah, he's very good. He's a it's a it's a it's a great loss. It's a great loss to movies that he died. It still makes me incredibly sad. Um, yeah, he's my favorite actor. I love him. Really? Uh, oh, that's rest. interesting. Wow. Yeah, I don't think I knew that. I mean, I think it's probably because, like, this time that we're talking about, like, 1999, this era, like, that's when I really got, um, like, activated as a movie enthusiast yeah. and Oscar obsessive. Yeah. So it's like, he was such a major figure of that time in the movies that I was seeing that, yeah. like, he's always been an important actor to, like, me as a cinephile. So. He's... In so many movies I love, and he's so, I mean, I'll use the word again, admirably, but he will so admirably often take parts that are not the most likable parts of movies, which is great, and which, you know, I think shows, says a lot about the kinds of, you know, roles he was seeking out and the kind of actor that he is. I, not always, but I sometimes found his techniques and style to be a lot. I sometimes, Mm -hmm. I think Flawless is a movie that I generally think it's a good performance, but there are times 
where the sort of the voice he's created for this character, both figuratively but also literally, the voice he is using takes me out of the performance. I there, there mm. are some times when I'm just like, you really worked on that, didn't you? Like you really like put a lot of elbow grease into, um, you know, in the way this character speaks, and sometimes it just doesn't feel natural for a, for a, an actor who often got praised for his naturalism he could do mm-hmm. unnatural a, a lot it could really you know you could i you, you could off not often but you could occasionally see the work and i think Some in flawless of that, like you could maybe i mean i don't know i'm not going to play armchair psychologist but it is worth noting that flawless is his first lead role yeah it's definitely unless worth i'm noting. mistaken no i think you're right let me uh yeah, right? He was your classic supporting actor. Mm-hmm. God, the movies he was in before I realized where he like he's in When a Man Loves a Woman, he's in The Getaway, he's in uh Leap of Faith with uh Steve Martin, that movie. <laughs> he's in Nobody's Fool. I mean never really stopped working yeah. since he started working. Yeah. But yeah, it's a bummer. It's a loss to movies. Definitely, for sure. De Niro is at an interesting point in his career at this juncture, right? Mm-hmm. Where he's, it's still how many years prior to, oh wait, is this the same year as Analyze This? I guess so. No, was that 98? No, because wasn't it, uh, hold on a second, let me look. Um, cause I remember there being the joke at the, uh, MTV movie awards, Griffin Newman and I always talk about this, the, uh, the joke at the MTV movie awards, the year that Lisa Kudrow hosted where she and Billy Crystal joke about the movie. Cause she's also in analyze this, the movie getting to a hundred million. And I remember when she hosted the, the MTV movie awards, there was a big, uh, Phantom Menace set piece. And, that was obviously 1999. So why won't Wikipedia just let me have a freaking filmography for pizza? <laughs> analyze This was ni- was 99. Okay. So and, and Analyze This was something of a comeback moment for De Niro, who had spent the 90s kind of not like gone, but like it's a real interesting mix of films in the 90s where you had, you mentioned here in the outline that his last Oscar nomination at this point in his career is for Cape Fear, one of my favorite performances of his. He is terrifying (laughs) in that movie. Just absolutely, utterly terrifying. I wouldn't see that movie for years. I was 11 years old when that movie came out, and everything I saw about that movie scared the shit out of me. And like, oh my god. But so he moves on from that. He's in films like mad dog and glory where he it's a you know comedic thing and i think the gag of mad dog and glory is he's the nice guy and bill murray is the mobster which like yeah hardy har har um he's a supporting performance in this boy's life with dicaprio he's a supporting performance in a bronx tale um He's, he's the creature in Mary Shelley's Frankenstein. He sure goddamn is. And a dumb movie that I love. A dumb movie that was, like, incredibly, like, consequential in terms of just, like, 
the Kenneth Branagh, Helena Bonham Carter of it all, right? Mm-hmm. Um, he's obviously the lead in Casino, the big sort of Goodfellas reunion, which doesn't do well in the way I think people expected it to. It does really well for Sharon Stone, but like not so well for anybody else. Um, that yeah. same year, for obvi- whatever. I don't. I still don't understand it because that's an incredible movie. Um, it's just very long, and I think it's it's weird to say casinos violent because obviously so is goodfellas but i feel like because we had already seen goodfellas the violence in casino did like couldn't help but feel gratuitous just because like we've seen a whole movie of this like i don't know entirely what the point is of like just like doing it all again goodfellas i suppose also is a little bit more um like out on the diving board um, than Casino is, and Casino is pretty straightforward, like just classic movie making. Whereas, like Goodfellas feels like a, a, maybe more revolutionary. I guess I don't know. Yeah, um, and Casino's a little stad. I guess I don't know. And for De Niro, Casino, his performance in Casino gets fully overshadowed by the fact that it's the same year as Heat, which is like the anticipated, you know, De Niro, Pacino together again. They have that great scene in the mm-hmm. diner and whatnot. Heat is another movie. It's not like Heat wasn't a big thing when it came out, but like there was definitely a learning curve to appreciating Heat because mm-hmm. Heat was very long and very kind of particular about itself and it wasn't it's not a popcorn movie even though it's not it's a crowd pleaser for the crowd that is going to see heat like if you're the kind of person that looks at heat and thinks that's a movie for me it's a movie for you it is (laughs) it's the thing about heat it does baffle me that we could absolutely do an episode on heat i don't know when we would do that because block out several hours yeah well no like it's also like do we we don't necessarily unpack the things that are unpacked all the time what are Um, we gonna bring to heat that other people you know what i mean like all the people who had heat to heat baby (laughs) so heat happens and then he after heat though he sort of retreats into like the fan is a weird movie where he plays an obsessed baseball fan who goes like like kidnaps the baseball player's son or something he like sneaks into a baseball game as the umpire to kill wesley snipes it's all yeah it's like it's it's trash it's tony scott it's tony scott so like it's you know it's at times enjoyable trash but even among tony scott movies nobody really seems to like the fan all that much he's a very small role in sleepers he's like the good priest in Mm -hmm. in sleepers which is a movie about child sexual abuse by uh uh adults he's the the fact that he plays a priest and you're like "Uh uh-oh and you're like no 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 he's the nice priest it's fine um marvin's room he's in a very small role as the sort of like kindly doctor in marvin's room um what is faithful oh Cher and chaz palminteri He's in Faithful with Cher and Chaz Palminteri. That's interesting. He's in interesting. Copland, which we definitely need to do. I would really rather not. Nope. Um, I want to. I'm gonna make. I'm gonna wear. I'm gonna wear you down. Look at this cast: Stallone, Keitel, Leota, De Niro. Yeah, it was a big thing for Stallone. He Garofalo, put on a bunch of weight, and uh, Edie Falco, Annabella Sciorra. 
I'm going to wear you down. As you, um, you, your confidence in winning the argument about Batman and Robin is my confidence about getting you to do Copland. What's going to happen? Um, 97's a fun year for him. It's Copland, obviously, but it's Jackie Brown, which he gets a sort of featured supporting role in that. And Wag like the one Dog. One of the least discussed things about that movie. Yeah, it's very true. It's not like he's bad in it, but he's... It's a little weird that he took that role. It's not a showy role. Like, he's role. not bad. He's funny. It's not showy, yeah. Yeah. He really sort of, like, eases into the ensemble in that movie, which is not a thing that's easy for Robert De Niro to do. Um, Wag the Dog is so good. It's such which a good movie. gets more attention for Dustin Hoffman. Hoffman Dustin gets Hoffman's the Oscar nomination, good. deservedly so. Hoffman's great. But, like... De Niro playing off of Hoffman as the sort of slightly bemused um, political strategist who doesn't quite know how uh, how to handle this this Robert Evans esque movie producer, very good, very funny and and dark. That movie you know gets dark, and but like these movies, it's not like they've it's a real departure from like De Niro the movie star which he had sort mm-hmm. of been for a while and He's i think taking kind of the back seat even if it's not intentionally so like yeah. what these movies get discussed for it's definitely a back seat it's a it's a decade of ta- him taking a back seat to other performers and i think that speaks well of him and speaks well of his sort of generosity as a performer but mm-hmm. i think all of a sudden then in 99 where he's in analyze this and flawless you see him start to step back into that spotlight whereas like analyze this it's definitely the two-hander with him and crystal it's not like he's you know taking the movie away from crystal but like it's very much de niro playing the mobster as you know a funny yeah it's a subversion of the tropes we're used to seeing de niro play or what he's famous for and Um, flawless also a two-hander but again you can see where he looks at this as like oh he's a homophobic cop with a with a stroke you know, it's mm-hmm. it's there's a lot of there's a lot of meat on those bones. There's, you know, maybe an award in my future for it. And like all of that is to say, for as much as like ninety-nine, he crawls back and like he's, you know, sort of like De Niro back on top. And then the two thousands is just like just absolute dive bomb into even with Meet the Parents as like a as a high starting point, but like that is your decade of Rocky and Bullwinkle and City by the Sea <laughs> and 15 Minutes and, you know... A lot of junk. Uh, a lot of junk. The score. Yeah. Which, again, you could see where the score might have been, because that was the one with Brando's in, right? Him and Brando and Edward Norton. Uh-huh. And it's just like, I remember that movie got sold as, like, three generations of elite acting talent, and it's like, for what? For the score? um oh boy and but yeah like this is your decade of like righteous kill and uh hide and seek and how is he He credited for the first time with the good shepherd a movie that whenever we get to exceptions we should sit through that boring movie yeah because that's like a perfect example you forget about that um production design nomination but that's like oh boy yeah crazy 
Oh, I'm looking at I'm looking at his Wikipedia thing, and he's got two columns, and one of them lists whether he's a producer, and one of them lists whether he's an actor, which is why Rent is on his filmography, and he's apparently a producer on that movie Faithful with Cher and Ches Palminteri, but not an actor in it. So I was interesting wrong about that. He's a producer on things like About a Boy and Rent and My Beloved Stage Beauty, but he's not in any of those movies. We also skipped 98, which maybe actually starts the, like, De Niro starring roles, because that's the year of Ronin, which, right. that was a hit, right? No? I remember crazy? it being, like, kind of a thing. That's Frankenheimer, right? Maybe. It it's makes... also the year he's in uh, Great Expectations, the Alfonso Cuaron movie that nobody talks about. It features a Tori Amos song that I absolutely love. Uh, yes. <laughs> That's my big takeaway from Great Expectations is uh, it features uh, Tori Amos' Siren, one of my favorite songs of hers. I've never actually seen the whole thing of Quaron's Great Expectations. I should at some I point. saw it as a kid, but like not in, not in a striking enough way that I could maybe talk in depth about that movie. I just think of that poster of <laughs> Gwyneth Paltrow lying uh, on her... Uh, lying on her stomach and you can see her whole sort of like naked back that's like the entire poster it's like you know the allure of Gwyneth obviously in her big Oscar year yeah De Niro is good in this movie but it's interesting I think to the movie's credit it doesn't sort of hand De Niro these big you know Oscar clip scenes where he struggles mm-hmm. through his speech difficulties to try and get out some impediment. big, you know, tearful speech that explains why he's the way he is and all this stuff. Like, all to the movie's credit that that doesn't happen. But, and it shows his generosity as a performer that he allows this to be Philip Seymour Hoffman's movie mostly. Mm-hmm. But, as a result, I'm just like, yeah. It's, I mean, De Niro sets a high standard for himself, and it's going to take a lot for me to be like, that's an impressive De Niro performance because of that. You know what I mean? <laughs> so uh, I think of just like, well, what are the – I thought – I started to think yesterday because it's like I like Robert De Niro as an actor. I recognize the greatness of Robert De Niro. But I'm just like, what are the De Niro performance that, performances throughout the years that have really, like, knocked me out? And I'm I mean, like, they're not anything – incredibly recent right but even like when i think of something like goodfellas one of his best movie one of the best movies that he's been in when i think of goodfellas i think pesci knocks me out lorraine bracco fucking amazing ray liotta on one in you know such an amazing way Mm -hmm. and de niro is like old reliable in that movie right he's like you know he's well in a lot of those movies too he's he's it's the cliche thing of saying making it look easy, right? In a way that, like, yeah. what he's actually bringing to those movies and, like, this believable character, you don't... it. The movie doesn't really metastasize around it until, like, The Irishman, right? Which he's incredible in. But even um, The Irishman, who gets the nominations? Pacino and Pesci. Right. Yeah. Right. Um, but still, I think that that's the movie that's kind of centering around what he is still bringing to the table. Right. Right. Of like the type of performer that he is and those type of movies that's incredibly watchable. Um, you know, subtle to the point of like, you know, if the movie is not focusing purely on him, you maybe don't see the subtlety there. Right. 
But that's why yes, when I does. think about De Niro, the perform the kinds of performances that jump out in my head are like Cape Fear. You know what I mean? Where it's mm-hmm. like where he's going so big and it's such a and I don't think there's anybody else who can do what he does in Cape Fear. It really is like a singular performance. Um and I don't want to be the kind of person who overlooks his quiet greatness in something mm-hmm. like a Goodfellas or you know even like a Godfather 2 where he won his first Oscar um his his like quote unquote like clip scenes from that movie aren't these big sort of like operatic things right it's when he's kind of you know being subtly intimidating or when you can sort mm-hmm. of see his character cross over from you know one type of person to the kind of person he's going to end up being as a as a sort of adult mob boss right and I think there's also a thing of, like, the peak era of De Niro in the 70s and early 80s. Like, you also have a wider range of characters that he's playing in things like Raging Bull, Taxi Driver, Deer Hunter, Godfather Part Two. Yeah. Those roles are all different. And, like, now it feels like De Niro and the movies that he's in are kind of uh, defined by a sameness, right? Like, they yeah. all kind of blur together Right. is the other thing. Right. Which is why it's been so uh, valuable for him to star in comedies like Analyze This and Meet the mm-hmm. Parents, where it really does help him stand out in something like that, because mm-hmm. it's the kind of thing we're not used to from him. Well, and even then, it still kind of quickly became a shtick. Yes. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um but Which, like, like you want to say that, movies. like, he's gone away from that, but <laughs> Bad Grandpa was not that long ago, friends. Oh, boy, it um, really wasn't. No. Yikes. No, when, when De Niro goes bad, it, it's, like, spectacularly bad. It's Rocky and Bullwinkle bad. It's Bad Grandpa bad. Like, it's that kind of a thing. <laughs> he really, he doesn't, I guess he just doesn't do anything, uh, you know, small. It's all just, like, you know, the best and then also sometimes the worst. Uh, what else? Before we move on yeah. to the IMDb game, I want to quiz you on something that hopefully you didn't look up. Uh-huh. So Flawless, one of its other uh, awards of note that we can mention, it was nominated for Outstanding Film in Wide Release by uh, for a Glad Media Award. Joseph, do you think you can guess the four <laughs> other films nominated for Outstanding Film in Wide Release by Glad that year? 1999. In 1999 by Glad. Um, Boys Don't Cry. No. Boys Don't Cry wins their limited release. Oh, okay. Cries, okay, okay, which okay. they don't have any other nominees. I'd have to imagine that they did. However, I didn't look it up because I already know it to be fact. There is something that they nominated for wide release that if it got a wider release than boys don't cry i will eat my hat i will <laughs> um i will um chew on my coffee mug that i have in front of me i will eat the ceramic so mug. there are four other nominees can yes. i ask whether they are all explicitly gay themed or are some of them just like campy slash like shit gay people love Okay, of these movies, uh, I, I mean, I would say they're I, all comedies. They're all comedies, okay. Yes. 
So Cruel um, Intentions is out. That's sort of what I was asking yeah, about. Uh, right. Okay. Yes. Um, it's not something necessarily like that. They're all comedies. I think is one of them election. One of them is election. Okay. Yes. Which has gay characters in it. Gay supporting characters. Right. Exactly. Um. The, the one that won, I would say, is the only one that has a gay lead. One of these other ones, I've never seen the movie, but I'm pretty sure it's people pretending to be gay. Oh. All right, now I've got to place myself back in 99. Obviously a very popular year in movies, and this is wide releases. Yes. All right. Pretending to be gay in 99. <laughs> Pretending to be gay in 99 is also a cool title of a movie that I think should be made. <laughs> I think that would be fun. Okay. Um, And it's a comedy. And it's like big stars? No. There is one of these movies that has big star, a big star in it, but these the gay characters are supporting. And I also confirmed Boys Don't Cry was definitely in a wider release than uh, One of these. this movie that was nominated. Maybe not at the time of the nominations. Who knows? Is that the one this where movie, people are pretending to be gay? That you this is, is the one where people are pretending to be gay. A notorious Sundance bomb. Oh, Happy Texas. It is Happy Texas. I've never seen it. Standing so film I... in wide release. Yeah, that's weird. That is weird. Um, all right, so... Two more after Flawless and Election. You don't have the winner yet. Was the winner a, a popular movie? Uh, popular, very critically well-received, Oscar nominee. Okay. In acting? Yes. And others. Is it American Beauty? It is not American Beauty. American okay. Beauty is not nominated. Okay. Um... It is nominated in acting and other... Have we talked about it on this episode? No, actually. Okay. Um, all right, now I'm going to go through... All Not a Best Picture nominee. Could have been close to a Best Picture nominee. All right, so what do we have? It's not the Sixth it Sense. It's in the Criterion oh, Collection. Is it Malkovich? It is being John Malkovich as the winner. A director nominee. It probably was very close because Spike Jones got the lone director nominee. Um, that's a really okay, good. Okay, so pick the fifth film is the one that it is like. What are you guys doing? Why is this here? Did you not see this movie? Oh, so it's offensive. Yes, with gay leads. It's one of those things where it's like, ooh, gross. Those guys are kissing. It's built for the audience to laugh at. Oh golly! And it's a wide with a release. Big star. With Definite wide release, huge hit movie. A big male star, and it's not um it's not it's like comedy. the Adam Sandler Kevin James movie, because that came much later. Um You're not far off base. Oh. Adam Sandler and someone else? Adam Sandler, nineteen ninety nine. Nineteen ninety nine was his summer movie. Big Daddy. Big Daddy. What's the gay shit in Big Daddy? 
he two of his friends are gay and like there's a shot that like cuts to them like kissing and the audience is supposed to say ooh gross and laugh i've seen big daddy and i remember none of that i must have blocked it out of my head wow that's wild what you doing glad what you doing indeed um yeah all right before we go to the imdb game also i wanted to this isn't exactly a quiz but um a little interesting tidbit about schumacher four movies that joel schumacher directed got at least one oscar nomination can you name the four uh well phantom phantom got three cinematography art direction and song both of the batmans no and saint almost fire wait did batman and robin get, get oscar nominations uh, I feel like it would have gotten like a production design nomination. Or I don't something. think it did. Or I'm maybe one of the check. sounds. I'm going to double check, but I don't think it did. It did not. Yeah, it was oh. such a bomb. I don't think the Oscars were going to touch it. That See, movie got nominated for one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven Razzies, including Off shit Razzies. like worst original song for the end is the beginning is the end which is like fuck off like leave billy corgan out of this he's got enough to deal with um but it only won one of them and that was worst supporting actress for alicia silverstone so like i don't know whatever guys but so yeah batman and robin not one of them batman forever you are correct that one also got cinematography along with both sound uh, nominations Mm -hmm. so two more uh it's got to be saying almost fire right nope not saying almost fire which is also horrendously reviewed like that movie was really didn't really have an original reviewed. song why did i think it was nominated? it did it should have been a nominee for original song because uh man in motion a theme from saint almost fire is a <laughs> quintessential 80s song and would have been a worthy uh-huh. nominee but it was indeed snubbed. oh what uh, I was going to mention it's not phone booth, even though Colin Farrell is incredible in that movie. This is obvious, and I didn't. Uh, it's it's right there. It's the client. The client. I was going to say it's a film you often forget when I give you things to uh, answer. It's a guess. Uh, yes. The yes, client, yes. At best actress nominee for Susan Sarandon. There's one more. Um, I'll give you like a couple guesses, but like it, I can. It's not a very obvious one, so. Oh, there's another one? Yes. Is it Flatliners? Yes, it's Flatliners. Got nominated yeah. for Best Sound Effects Was it like editing. visual effects or something? Sound. Sound effects editing. Yep. Ah. Yeah. So four movies for Oscar nominations. Good for Joel Schumacher. I will say for somebody, as I've mentioned, who it is not, it is not a bulletproof filmography, but there's some real interest there. There's a few little holes that I have in my Schumacher filmography that I'm interested in in kind of patching up i want to see cousins which is the uh american adaptation of cousin cousin that the that uh isabella johnny got an oscar nomination for Mm -hmm. that was in 1989 i want to see i don't want to see all of these i don't think i ever really need to see bad company the uh anthony hopkins chris rock movie but i'm interested what's his other julia roberts movie Dying Young um, with Campbell Scott, which was nominated was for like four else. MTV Movie Awards. Like that was the what the popularity of Julia Roberts at the time was. That, cool. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Yeah. 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 Exactly. Um, 
Julia Roberts, Campbell I will never Scott. again ever watch 8mm. That's not going to happen. Oh, no. Like, absolutely not while I watch 8mm again. Um, I'd like what to watch Falling Down again, I guess. But, like, I don't expect that that's going to have aged super well. It is available streaming somewhere. Yeah. I almost perversely want to see the number 23 again, and I don't know why. But, like, like numerology mumbo-jumbo, I am ashamed to admit, like works on me which is not to say i believe in it but like numerology mumbo jumbo works on me like i will see something with that and just be like oh this is creeping me out a little bit like that kind of thing so it's just like oh it's the I same never saw thing. that movie yeah it's bad trying it's to think of what bad. other joel schumacher movies because like it, it's truly like like am i gonna wild. see veronica garen again ever like unless we do it for this podcast probably not um but like i've never saw that um generally the thing about joel schumacher that's interesting is generally his movies that made a lot of money are all very watchable he very rarely made a movie that was a big success and you're just like oh i don't ever want to see that like batman forever the client a time to kill not perfect movies but like all incredibly watchable um i don't remember if phantom of the opera ended up making a lot of money maybe that's the exception no it didn't um like, St. Elmo's Fire, for as like much as it got shit on at the time, and it's certainly no Breakfast Club, but, like, watch St. Elmo's Fire just for that cast. Like, it's, a, you know, it's... I mean, we haven't really talked about the Lost Boys. The Lost Boys still is, like, Lost Boys is great. Flatliners is great. Like, go watch these movies. Go watch Tigerland. You'll get so horny for Colin Farrell, you won't know what That's to do with That's the one that I need to see. Oh, you do. Seen. You really do. Yeah. It's one of those, like, it's a Vietnam movie about a, you know, a you know rebellious soldier and all that that entails. And yet, you'll get so horny for Colin Farrell, you won't know what to do with yourself. <laughs> uh, as horny as I get for Colin Farrell watching, like, Killing of a Sacred Deer and the Lobster. <laughs> Different kind of horny than that, but, like... You see a lot of Colin Farrell and... Uh, killing of a sacred deer that's true but it's like but it's it's a different thing he's such a weirdo in killing of a killing of a sacred deer it's perfect in that movie incredible we got to do that movie soon yeah joel schumacher may he rest what a singular talent in hollywood we were better for having had him we thank you for your efforts sir yes all right imdb game let's do it all right, tell our lovely listeners what the IMDb game is. Hey, sure. Every week we end our episodes with the IMDb game, where we challenge each other with an actor or actress to try and guess the top four titles that IMDb says they are most known for. If any of those titles are television or voiceover work, we mention that up front. After two wrong guesses, we get the remaining titles release years as a clue. If that is not enough, it just becomes a free-for-all of hints. That's the IMDb game. Joseph, would you like to give or guess first? Oh, golly. Why don't I guess first? Okay, cool. So for you, I have, notedly when we were talking about the movie Flawless, we were talking about the two that are also cast member, original cast members of Rent. For you, I have chosen another Rent cast member, Mr. Anthony Rapp. Oh, boy, this is going to be tough. Anthony Rapp, who like I've gone too easy on you, will always show up in a thing, and I'm like, oh, it's Anthony Rapp. But all right, there's no television. Is Rent one say. of them? Rent is one of them. Is Adventures in Babysitting one of them? Yes, it oh, is. Thank God, okay, so I at least got those two. Okay, now, 
So, like, the things that I remember him in are sometimes things that are very small. Like, I'm just going to guess Six Degrees of Separation, but I don't think it's right. No. Yeah, okay. Um, Mr. Anthony Rapp. Okay. He's a C, Six Degrees of Separation. Uh, you've never seen Six Degrees of Separation? It's great. I don't think so. Oh, golly, is it great. Um, Stalker Channing's phenomenal. Like... Utterly phenomenal. Um, all right. Two more. You only have one wrong guess. Mr. Anthony. All right. Rapp. I feel like there's one other movie that he was in, like, around Adventures in Babysitting Time, that I remember him from. That I remember that, like, when Rent came out. I'm like, oh, it's that guy. Um, but now I'm struggling to recall it. Oh, it's Dazed and Confused. Dazed and Confused. He's really good in Dazed and Confused, I will say. Him and Are there uh, people who are bad in Dazed and Confused? No. Actually, there aren't. Everybody's great in that. Even dumb little Wiley Wiggins, who never got to do anything else after that. Um, who, I'm pretty sure, is the same guy who's being like name-checked in the newest season of You Must Remember This as doing like production work like karina longworth will always mention such and such done by wiley wiggins and i'm like is that how many wiley wiggins can there be in the world like good for him (laughs) what if there was just a panoply of wiley wigginses out there Uh, um all working in different fields would be amazing all right so i've got three i'm looking for the fourth you only have one wrong guess so i can't give you any hints yet i am astounded at how well you're doing so far. Yeah, this is a really tough I was one. trying to be a dick. And it's not television, so it's not the Star Trek thing. <sighs> what else? I may have reached the limits of Anthony Rapp projects that I've seen. You've definitely seen this last one. Oh, I did. Um, It was... I just saw it again recently and was surprised to have seen him in it. He's in uh, Twister. Nope. No. It is not Twister. Fuck you. <laughs> I was uh, so your sure. Year, your year is 2001. Oh. I'll give you another hint because I don't think you, uh, that's going to help you necessarily. Other than to say you despise this movie. From 2001. You're not alone in hating it. Is he in A Beautiful Mind? He is in A Beautiful Mind, I do and hate he is that on movie. his known for. I don't remember him in that movie whatsoever, but I do hate that movie. You were, That's a very good clue to give to me. That's I an hate, interesting hate watching for. things, but I need to see that again to like oh, remember so anything about it, but also to just be able to have discourse with you about how terrible it is. The way that the score is deployed in that film is so offensive it's so bad that's a good known for though for anthony rap dazed and confused adventures in babysitting rent and then drops off a cliff with a beautiful mind but that's you could call it enviable yeah some, good for him you know you have a best picture winner even if it's terrible some cool stuff mm-hmm. and you know the thing that you're actually known for yeah so i uh going into the joel schumacher filmography picked one out for you from one of his earliest films you have already mentioned that you love it from the lost boys i am giving you mr Kiefer sutherland aha one Um, television one voice performance 
a voice performance. Unless he's like... It would make sense that he's like some type of poisonous thing in... uh, like a um like he he makes absolute sense that he would not be in the lion king movie but not the jungle book movie but like Mowgli. remember the netflix one or it wasn't netflix it got sold to it got sold to to netflix yeah it's not it's not bad nobody watched it yeah um that would make sense um well the tv's 24 it is correct voice performance is Unless it's Phone Booth, which is technically not a voice performance because you do see him at the end of the movie. No, you don't. Yes, you do. Do you? Yes. Okay, well, it's Phone Booth, so you got it. Sweet. All right. Phone Booth is kind of great. The best thing about Phone Booth is that it's like 78 minutes long. It's so short. Um, yeah, 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 yeah. But, yeah, it's a good, it, tight it little movie. It kind of has no right to be as good as it is because it is fully trash. Yes, um, it is. That is just spectacular, and Colin Farrell is spectacular. It's a sprint. It. The movie the looks movie. like garbage. Yeah. Yes, it does. All um, right, okay. Two more. Other key for Sutherland movies. I can't imagine that there's two Joel Schumachers on there, but I gotta say, The Lost Boys. It's a. You're right to guess it, but no, it's yeah. incorrect. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, what else is he going to be? One of these was a big popular movie that he was in, uh, 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 that he was part of the ensemble, but like a feature, like he's on the poster. An ensemble. Is it Young Guns? It's Young Guns. 1988's Young Guns. Okay. Can you read for me? I don't mean to give you a game within a game, but there are six people on the poster of Young Guns. Can you name f- five of them? I mean, see, the poster for Young Guns is as far as it's going to get. I probably know the poster very well. Yeah. Um, It's uh, him, Emilio Estevez, Lou Diamond Phillips, uh, Christian Slater? Christian Slater doesn't um, show up until the second one. Okay. Then maybe I don't remember the poster. Um, It is not only Emilio Estevez, but also... Charlie Sheen? Charlie Sheen. Who is a more natural fit for the Old West than Charlie Sheen, let me ask you. Right, 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 right. Um, two more actors. One uh, one of them is Casey Samasco, who, like, whatever, I'm not going to ask you to remember Casey Samasco. But one of them is an actor who definitely went on to be in things. He was probably not known then, but... Uh... uh... He went on to be in things. Um, Who was was Kiefer's big sort of claim to fame in his early years beyond the movies he was in? What was the like thing that everybody knew about Kiefer Sutherland? Um, drugs. He um, he dated Julia Roberts. Right. Okay. So a very famous oh, okay. co-star of Julia Roberts. Oh, a famous co-star of Julia Roberts. Uh, it's not Denzel Washington. No. Um. And it's obviously a dude. Uh huh. It's not going to be Rupert Everett. No, um, but you're warm. Dermot Mulroney. Dermot Mulroney. Dermot Mulroney makes it call him a famous Julia Roberts co-star. Well, it's from a beloved movie of hers. Sure, sure, sure. Okay, okay. All right. um, So you're looking for one more. This is your hardest one to get by far. Is it like eye for an eye? No. And now you'll Mm. get a year. Your year is 2008. 
So post-24, how long did that abysmal show go on? Um, Well, it kept getting sort of like brought back, but I think its main run ended in 2010. So this is not... I should have guessed Melancholia, even though it's wrong. Right. But he's in Melancholia. It's not that... Is okay. (laughs) Is it Mirrors? It's Mirrors. Alexandra Aha's Mirrors. Mirrors, Mirrors, which has like the grossest scene I have maybe ever seen in a movie. I've never seen Mirrors, but I should, right? At some point, just to see it. You kind of should. Like for a trashy, really gory horror movie, like go to Mirrors. Um, Alexandra Aha makes good movies. Like. Uh-huh, Aja, His Hills Have Eyes that? movie is really good um, yeah. and horrifying. Um, problematic fave, high tension. Yeah. Um, super problematic. But uh, someone who I forget what the actress is that's in Mirrors. It's not Ali Larder, <laughs> but it's w- like that. Amy right? Smart. Uh, one of those. Amy Smart. Oh, Amy Smart. Of. Okay. Makes also, Paula sense. Patton. Paula Patton, love Paula Patton. Yeah. She's the wife in the movie, though. But yes. the scene has, I, I guess, Amy Smart. And, like, the what the mirrors do is, like, the mirrors are haunted and they can make, like, <laughs> things happen and you do things. The mirror Amy Smart, while the real Amy Smart is getting in a bathtub, starts to rip off her own jaw. <laughs> it truly, I saw this movie with a friend... And, like, when it happened, we just, like, let out a sustained scream for, like, 30 seconds because it was so gross and horrifying. Um, uh, Mirrors is fucked. Um, how do we pronounce I that director's last name? I've always thought Aha because it was, I always assumed he was he's Spanish, French. but he's French. So is that Aja? Maybe. I don't know. I'm notoriously terrible with French. Anyway, um, I've seen a lot of his movies. I've seen His Hills Have Eyes remake. I've obviously seen High Tension. I've seen Piranha 3D. Um, There's some interesting stuff. I've never saw Horns. Why would you? Remember Horns? Daniel Radcliffe with Horns? I'm told by a lot of people that uh, Crawl is great. Crawl. What's Crawl? The it just came out. It's on Hulu now. I think it's an alligator movie. Oh, oh! I did hear about that. I think you're right that it is an alligator movie. I remember people being like, "One of the great alligator movies." I'm like, "Is that a thing? <laughs> is that a thing we're ranking now as best alligator movies?" Yes, we are now pivoting to being an alligator movie podcast. <laughs> um, but exactly. On that note, I think that's our episode. If you want more this head Oscar buzz, you can check out the Tumblr at thisheadoscarbuzz.tumblr.com. You should also follow our Twitter account at had underscore Oscar underscore buzz. Joe, my friend, where can the listeners find more of you and your stuff? Sure, I'm on Twitter at Joe Reed. Reed is spelled R-E-I-D. I am on Letterboxd. Joe Reed spelled the same way. And I am on Twitter at Christy File, that's F-E-I-L, also on Letterboxd under the same name. We would be remiss this week to not also once again spotlight the Marsha P. Johnson Institute. Uh, you can donate at MarshaP.org, that's M-A-R-S-H-A-P.org. Guys, the week this episode uh, drops, it's my birthday. <gasps> Uh, if you birthday, want to do something nice for me for my birthday, please donate to the Marsha P. Johnson Institute. 
Um, we would like to thank Kyle Cummings for his fantastic artwork and Dave Gonzalez and Gavin Mevius for their technical guidance. Please remember to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, wherever else you get your podcasts. Five-star review in particular really helps us out with Apple Podcast visibility. So please write those reviews and sing out, Louise! Uh, that's all for this week, but we hope you'll be back next week for more buzz. Yeah.